We're going to be doing um, a a fair few Bible readings today. Most of them are going to be in the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles out and find the book of Acts. This is not a quote from the Bible, but from a book that I enjoy. It says this. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Tell me, tell me what book it comes from, you know? Who knows what book that is quoted from? Oh, Bilbo Baggins, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. It got, the same, it got the same response when he said it as when I said it. I'll read it again. I don't know half of you as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you as well as you deserve. It sounds like an insult when you first read it. It's not. We're not going to tear apart that quote. It's not the point. But I do want to highlight the fact that the author of the book, Tolkien, he used that quote and that scene out of the book as a way of transitioning the character, Bilbo Baggins, from a life of comfort, a life of ease that was primarily only disturbed by a distant memory that sort of haunted him from bygone adventures when he was a younger hobbit. Bilbo, in the book so far, has been dreaming of uh, sort of distant mountains that are shrouded in mist of dragons and of trolls, of friendship and of loss. And so, on his 111st birthday... He throws a party and makes a speech that goes along with the grand plans that he has to set his feet to the road again and be once more swept off into one final and glorious adventure. For Tolkien, Bilbo had developed a restless discontent for the quiet interruptions of life. And it got me thinking why I too often feel a restless discontent for the quiet interruptions of home and life. I think to some degree we can all identify with it. That that internal wondering about what more could be done, what else is out there. In fact, I think it's part of Tolkien's mastery of writing that he weaves into the characters of his stories things that we can associate with to some degree, things that we wrestle with. So this sort of wondering about where life could take us in its worst case scenario gives us sayings like, the grass is greener on the other side. You know that saying? Do you know that feeling, that wondering that, is it better somewhere else? 
But that's not, I think, what Tolkien means by it. I think at its best, it can build a type of holy discontent for just staying the same and driving us to see what else could be a part of even God's plans for us personally and certainly for us as a church. If you've read those books before or if you're one of those people that thinks movies are better, um, they're not. The, the story is written in a genre which is called a quest. It's a quest genre. A, a journey that maybe at the beginning of the story you can't see the end of and it's filled with all sorts of uncertain and unknown twists and turns and yet it always leads to an inevitable ending and a final climax. And it mirrors in a very imperfect way, a greater story, a better story that God has laid out for us. And we can read of some of this story as we read through the book of Acts. You see, in lots of ways, the book of Acts is written like a quest. In your Bible, maybe it says the Acts of the Apostles on the very first page of chapter 1. I suspect that it should be better written, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because God is at work through the Bible. God is at work in redeeming back a world to himself that has become broken and distorted. And as God unfolds his plan of redemption through the gospel in the New Testament in particular, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, sends us on a quest as we follow what God is doing. The great thing is, is he invites us to become a part of the fellowship. He wants us to join with him as he is working in this world. And so we read of this quest as the gospel takes root in that ancient city of Jerusalem following the resurrection of Jesus. And then it spreads inevitably outwards towards the end of the earth. It seems all sorts of boundaries, all sorts of obstacles, all sorts of characters rise up to try and ruin the quest. But it moves ever forward, inevitably towards that great climax that even today we are still looking forward to. I think what Tolkien does here in Lord of the Rings, we can see a better picture of as you go to the book of Acts, as you even experience in the realness of your own life, your own experiences. And if we were to boil it down, we could say that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that transforms lost people into found people, that that brings the dead to life. The gospel must multiply. And I want to emphasize the word must. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, must multiply. The gospel forces people away from the comfort of their own home and sets our feet to the road. So 
if you want to know if the gospel has taken root in your life, if we want to know whether the gospel has taken root in this church, then just take a look and ask the question, is it multiplying? Is it multiplying? We're going to read some text shortly, but before we do that, I want to ask God to help us hear and discern his voice. Will you join me? Lord, we need you to speak. As Peter once said, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? So we turn to you now, Lord. By your spirit and through your word, will you speak words of life to us? Maybe to awaken something in us that is dormant. Maybe to open our eyes for the very first time to the reality and truth of your love. And to push us out, if needed, onto the road to see where the gospel might lead us. Lord, we're listening. Help us have ears to hear what you're saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're thinking about multiplication of disciples today. Part of our series that we're doing. We've looked at making and um, maturing. And now multiplying. I was reflecting on the life of just this church. One of thousands in this country. One of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of churches scattered around the world. Right this present point in time. Meeting in whenever their time zone is. Maybe just a little bit like we are. But here's the way it's worked here. I first attended a Sunday morning service at Raymond Terrace Community Church, I think, if I've done my math right, about 23 years ago. On that very first Sunday that I ever attended this church, and let me be completely honest, it wasn't because they preached the Bible here, or it wasn't because they had an excellent band, or it wasn't even because of the fellowship lunch that we used to have every Sunday. Okay? Aunty Faye's, I think, caramel tarts. I mean, I used to put up with some of the other things that were on the table just to get those. But it wasn't for any of those things that I came here for. I was here because there was a good-looking girl that loved Jesus and she attended this church and my great hope was that she would continue to love Jesus but might squeeze me into her life as well. But 23 years ago, things looked very different to what they do now. Those of you who were here then will remember. We didn't require this big building. This one wasn't here. Where we're sitting now was grass that we used to have to mow frequently. Um, they used to be up where the demandables are now, but running in a different orientation, parallel to the road, an old weatherboard chapel that had a uh, Besser Block outdoor toilet amenities behind it. And um, the green tree frogs were attracted to those outdoor toilets for some reason. <laughs> We knew everyone by name. 
You know those uncomfortable moments? Let's all be honest. On a Sunday morning like today, where you see someone, you think, I'm supposed to know their name. I've forgotten their name. Do I ask their name again? Is that embarrassing? What do I do? 23 years ago, we didn't really have to do that. We certainly didn't have live streaming. We didn't even have a podcast. We didn't have an overflow room. The lighting looked like a bunch of Milo tins with spotlights in the back of them and bits of cellophane colour over the front of it. You remember that? That's because they were Milo tins with spotlights and cellophane paper over the top. And there weren't this many people gathering together on a Sunday morning. But if I'd come here 45 years ago, things would have even been more different. Maybe we weren't even meeting in that hall. Maybe those that were here were meeting in the RSL hall or the school at one point in time. Just a handful of families who loved Jesus and loved this community. You see, back then, we were what was called a church plant. That's a pretty hip and popular term in church life now. Church plant. We're a church plant. You church planning? You should be church planning, man. We were a church plant before it was cool. But we can't really have much of a claim to fame because every single church since the very first church in Jerusalem has some, at some point in time been a church plant. That's right. Yeah. Praise God. You see, this church was born out of the overflow of the gospel from another church, yeah. a little church that was up in Shortland in Newcastle. And those that were there had a heart for the, for the gospel to reach into this town. And so the gospel multiplied and disciples multiplied and we are experiencing the fruit and the joy and the benefit of that. But the church in Shortland also, if we could go further back in history, it was the overflow of the gospel from some other church who had a heart for Shortland and for the people that lived in that community and a love for Jesus that drove them onto the road to say, how do we multiply the gospel there? If we had the means, we could trace our spiritual lineage all the way back to the very first church that had ever existed, that was born on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days after Jesus paid for the sins of this world. It'd be one of those family tree type deals. You know those ones? Where we look at who our spiritual parents were as a church. And we would be able to trace our way back and every stage, every limb on that tree, every branch is an overflow of the gospel as disciples multiplied. 
From that day, 50 days after Jesus hung on a cross... When the Spirit came and when the disciples spoke with boldness the good news of Jesus Christ and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day, that's explosive growth. I wonder if Peter ever wrote a book. Oh, he He did. But the gospel has been transforming lives from that day to this. It has been multiplying discipleship from that day to this, whether it's through conversation or kindness, through asking people to come in or being a community who's willing to go out. Disciples have kept multiplying until eventually they were a part of this little church gathered in Raymond Terrace in 2021. The gospel multiplies by making and maturing and multiplying disciples. And so the question must be asked, if we're not multiplying, can we really say that we're a gospel church? I told you to turn to Acts. Keep your finger there. But I want you to read Matthew chapter 28 with me. Well-known passage to lots of people, but it's good for us to remind ourselves of it. Matthew 28, just reading from verses 18 to 20, says this, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. After he had suffered... He also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Go down to verse 8 of the same chapter. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' commission to his disciples and to us. And although you have a book in your hand and it contains a record of the growth of the church, In the book of Acts, the story isn't finished. The multiplication hasn't ended. The ends of the earth are still to be reached. And so I have just five principles of gospel multiplication that I think would be helpful for us to highlight today. Primarily out of the book of Acts. Five considerations that I think we as a church should hold firm to. 
five that I want us to consider as a church and for you to assess and consider in your own life. These are the principles of gospel multiplication that leads to disciple multiplication. So here's the first one. If you're a note-taking person, jot them down. First one is gospel multiplication, the multiplication of disciples is spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered. I want to read to you again some verses that we just read together, but just to concretely attach them to your thinking. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Remember, we're talking about multiplication, we're talking about going, we're talking about go out, ends of the earth sort of stuff, except Jesus starts by saying to his disciples, don't go anywhere. Stay here in Jerusalem, right? While he was with them, this is verse 4 of chapter 1, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Now, we might just sort of think, well, hang on, Jesus, didn't you just say, go into all the world? In fact, those verses that we we call the Great Commission go into all the world. A bunch of scholars who who look at the interpretation of that original language and it's probably better if we think about Jesus saying, as you go into all the world. It's not a a command for you to sort of go, you know what, you should think about going sometime. (laughs) This is an expectation that Jesus has of his disciples as you go. His expectation is that we're already going. But as we go, this is what we should do. But before we jump the gun, Jesus wants to point us back to something really important. Verse 4, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what? To wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And then Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is the road map to the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were told to stay, in Judea, which is the region around them, and then Samaria, which is the next region further out, and then the ends of the earth. A bit like Jesus saying, hey, listen, you be witnesses for me in Raymond Terrace, Port Stephens, the Hunter, and then the ends of the earth. And if that means having to go to Sydney, then I will be with you, even though, even though it's the end of the age, you know. But I don't want you to miss this. Jesus knows that, look, there are all sorts of strategies, that we, we're going to come to that in a moment, but there's all sorts of strategies that we can use, there's all sorts of great ideas that we can have, but unless the Lord builds this house... We labor in vain. The very best that you have to bring to the table is still not going to be good enough. The very best programs, the very best initiatives, the very best live streaming, the very best bands, the very best preaching, the very best... Unless God is in this, we're just playing games. Wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, Jesus says. 
Because real gospel multiplication, real discipleship multiplication is empowered by, fueled by the Spirit of God. Unless the Spirit is building his church, we're just playing religious dress-ups in a house of cards even. We can have all sorts of things in place, but please... We cannot miss this. We have to be so dependently coming back to God all the time. I think it's already come out in the last couple of weeks, but as you read through the book of Acts, one of the themes is the disciples always saying, God, where should we go next? What should we do next? In fact, as the Apostle Paul was traveling through what's now known as sort of Turkey and going towards Greece... On one of his missionary journeys, it's astounding that the text actually says that there was a wide open door for the gospel there. You know what that means? It means that as the leadership team got together, they said, you know what? There's a great opportunity. Let's take it. And you know what the Spirit said? No. Not yet. It says the Spirit of Jesus stopped Paul from going into that area. Now think about it for a moment. There's a wide open door for a gospel opportunity there and the Spirit said, don't go there, Paul. How do we make sense of that? How does Paul make sense of it? Paul doesn't go. Because he knows unless the Spirit is in this, unless Jesus is making this clear then all my best efforts will come to nothing. doesn't matter what the opportunities look like. And soon enough comes the call from Macedonia, come, come. And the Spirit makes it clear that Paul should go. So that's the first thing I want us to try and grasp. When we talk about discipleship, multiplication in this church... We have to be a church which is completely rooted back and dependent on the fact that it is the Spirit of God which is at work amongst us to do this. We can't make anything. (laughs) But God can. Spirit empowered. Second principle. It must be word-fueled. Spirit empowered and then word-fueled. And I mean the word of God. I'm going to run through six passages really quickly. I'm not going to unpack each of them, but I want you to see the theme that runs through the book of Acts. First one is Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Now, for those of you who didn't realize, the book of Acts is kind of written in six scenes. It's a bit like if you go to the theater... And there's a scene, and at the end of the scene, sometimes there's a small uh, transition or a break, and then a new scene starts. Okay? The book of Acts is written like that. These verses act as scene changes. As the scene closes and we transition to the next scene in the book of Acts, these are the verses that transition us. And look at what's similar about them. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread... The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests. 
<laughs> Fancy that, eh? <laughs> so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God spread and multiplied. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. These are the closing verses of the book of Acts. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house. And he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So in case you've missed the theme, let me spell it out as clearly as I can. It is entirely possible to grow a church or start new ventures without the word of God being central, but you won't be multiplying disciples. The word of God is supernatural. And after the work of the spirit, it is the central theme that we see driving the quest of the book of Acts. As the word went out and as the word spread, as the word multiplied, disciples multiplied. Where the word of God was central, disciples sprung up around it. There's explosive growth In the early church. But you see time and time again. Where the word grows. Disciples grow. And are multiplied. So spirit empowered. Is the first one. Word fueled. Is our second principle. The third one is this. I will explain this term. But just hang with me for a moment. The third principle. Of multiplication of the gospel and multiplication of disciples is that it is environmentally revolutionary. I do not mean that you now have to join up to the Greens party. In fact, don't mind going on record, please don't. Environmentally revolutionary. What I mean by that is that as you read through the book of Acts... It's all the things that we don't want to happen as a church that do happen and provoke growth. Let me be even clearer. Persecution provoked growth. Read with me from Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. There was a guy in the church in Jerusalem there, sharp guy. The Bible says he's filled with the Spirit, with boldness. A guy that seemed to understand systems really well. He was actually appointed as a deacon in the church in Jerusalem to help sort of um, iron out some of the problems that they were having with relational disharmony in the church. 
And he got up and preached the best sermon of his life. It might have been the only sermon of his life. It was definitely the last sermon of his life. Stephen got up and preached this absolutely cracking gospel message. People didn't like it, mostly because he didn't just imply that they were stiff-necked, ignorant, and disobedient. He actually said that. And so they decided to kill him. Became known as the first martyr of the church. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now remember, on the very first day that the gospel was preached at Pentecost, we know that at least 3,000 people were added and baptized that day. Over the subsequent weeks, many more. Potentially, we're talking about a church in its full size, not that they probably would have been able to gather together at any one point in time, but in its full size in Jerusalem, we're talking about a church of maybe five, six, or 7,000 people in the opening weeks after persecution, uh, sorry, after Pentecost. And then Stephen preaches, and the crowds in Jerusalem turn nasty, and they kill Stephen for the gospel. And Saul, a key figure in the book of Acts, became known as Paul. He agrees with this. Severe persecution breaks out. This was not persecution that we call persecution. This is literally, if you talk about Jesus, we will kill you type persecution. And all the church were scattered. Who wants to be a part of that church, huh? Wouldn't that be just so much fun? We don't like it when someone tells us whether we have to wear a mask or not. Look what happens next. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, you see the link? Made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. These are, these are quite far away from Jerusalem. Speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks Also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So get this. Persecution strikes the church and everyone just goes, we don't like this. We don't like, no one likes persecution. No one likes being uncomfortable. No one likes being killed. We don't. We can be holy about it. We can all be all righteous about it, but we don't. 
We don't like death. We don't like pain. We don't like our freedoms removed. We don't like that sort of stuff. And here it is. It's breaking out. And we think, oh, no, Lord. Take the persecution away. We don't like it. And yet, it's in the middle of the persecution that the church explodes. And people are scattered, but they they don't forget the message that they're asked to carry with them. As you go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them to obey, baptize them, and and don't forget, I'm going to be with you. And so they go. We don't think... We don't think of opposition as being the ideal growing environment for churches. But the Bible and church history tells us otherwise. Some of the places in the world right now where the church is exploding like we cannot even fathom are the very same places where their governments are oppressing them like we can't even fathom. If we could not contain Jesus in a grave, we can't contain the good news, good news about Jesus who rose from the grave. So if the government wants to oppress us, if the government wants to push us down, if the government wants to make life difficult for us, yes, we don't have to rejoice. Yes, we don't have to say, oh, isn't this lovely? But we don't have to lose heart either. We don't have to shrivel away. We don't have to lose hope. Because multiplying the gospel through multiplying disciples often happens best in environments that we don't think will work well for us. This won't work well for us. Here's the fourth one. We have a guaranteed outcome. Multiplying the gospel and multiplying disciples has a guaranteed outcome. Matthew chapter 16 verse 8 says, Jesus talking to Peter, I also say this to you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Will not. Jesus knew the roadmap and he knew the end of the story. So when he says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, he's not sitting there going, I hope they don't wreck this. <laughs> Jesus is not sitting right now in heaven thinking up a plan B. Jesus is not twiddling his fingers right now, just going, gee, I hope they do a good job. It all rests on their shoulders. There is a guaranteed outcome to what Jesus is doing in this world. The end of the story has been written and Jesus wins every time. Those of you who love the Marvel stories and the end game, everyone's wondering, what's the one outcome? Captain whatever, strange guy. <laughs> he holds up his finger and he holds up, this is the, this is the end game. This is the, this is the number one outcome. Well, here's the number one outcome. Jesus wins. Amen. The church prevails. It will be rocky along the way, guarantee it. Some churches 
lose their way. We know as we read through the book of Revelation, there are churches that Jesus had to come to and say, I'm sorry, I'm removing your lampstand. And we should mourn that. The witness of Christians, those that even claim the name of Christ and do harm and damage in this world to the gospel, we should mourn that. But we should be warned by it as well. But there is a guaranteed outcome. We're not going to read it through today, but if you would to turn to Revelation and read through Revelation chapter 5 or Revelation chapter 21, you know what you'd see there? You'd see the church of God triumphant. Standing before the throne and the Lamb. And it says there that there are people there from every tongue and tribe and nation. Every colour, every culture. The end result is guaranteed. It is written. Jesus wins. So let's not lose hope. Let's not shy away. Let's keep going. Yes, the path will be hard sometimes, but the outcome is guaranteed. And here's the fifth one. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to do this. You don't have to have even been to get a theological degree. It is a simple process to multiply the gospel through multiplying disciples. Read with me from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. There's an easy one for you to remember. 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul writing to a young Timothy who he has invested into. I mean, Paul was a busy guy, right? Paul traveled all the way through the known world, planning churches, speaking. He was like one of the very first Christian celebrities. Everyone knew about Paul. Didn't mean they all liked him, but everyone knew about him. He was busy. I reckon he had a busy ministry calendar. But what Paul did do was something that Jesus had done. Along the way, Paul selected a few key young ones that were interested, who desired to walk this path of discipleship with him, and he invested into them. He asked them to come along with him on some of his journeys. They saw him respond to persecution and hardship. They saw him preach the gospel He talked with them on the road and eventually he asked them to do stuff. And he wrote them letters of encouragement saying, hey, how are you doing? And this is one of the the occasions when he does this. And now he's saying to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In that one verse, we have... Four generations of multiplication. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men who can teach others also. It's a simple process. I imagine Paul learnt it from Jesus. Jesus did the same. Jesus had a very busy ministry calendar. He was traveling, 
There were crowds. I mean, sometimes he was trying to pull out of things. He was like, I'm not talking to the crowds today. I want to get on a boat and go to the other side of the lake. Let's go fishing. Let's go somewhere else. Let's withdraw to a lonely place for a little while. But nonetheless, the crowds found him, right? It's one of the, the hallmarks of Jesus' life on the three years of public ministry that he had. Always surrounded by crowds. And yet along the way, he called people to himself and he said, come follow me. Come walk with me for a while. Come spend time with me. And he invested into a few who were able to reach the crowds. But we don't have to come up with really fancy strategies here. We don't have to come up with 30 step with six sub points. This is not a John Piper sermon. Right? We just have to do simple things well, which are let's let's talk to people about Jesus in a way that is just compelling and careful and loving. And as we do that, let's ask other Christians to come with us on the journey of following Jesus. And let's encourage them to do the same thing. Let's say, hey, what about you? Invite someone into your life to walk with Jesus with you. The gospel multiplies. It can't help it. It doesn't matter if there's persecution. It doesn't matter if there are obstacles. It doesn't matter if people want it or not. At the end of the day, the gospel multiplies. Now, I said that back in... The day when I turned up here, we used to have fellowship lunch every week. I wonder if they had fellowship lunch back in the Jerusalem church 2,000 years ago. I know they did, so they went from house to house breaking bread with each other. I wonder, I wonder if there was ever an occasion 2,000 years ago in the very first church in Jerusalem, no other churches existed anywhere else in the world, there were no other disciples anywhere else in the world. I wonder if there were two disciples one day chatting over caramel tarts. I wonder if, I wonder if any of them said to each other, Hey, um, do you reckon this whole go into all the world and preach the gospel thing's going to work? I wish I could sit with them right now. And say, yeah, it did. And maybe, maybe we're wondering, Raymond Terrace Community Church, 2021, all the things that are going on in our world, all the restrictions that we talk about all the time. I wonder if we look at each other sometimes and think, is this all going to really work? Is this worth the, the effort? Will Jesus really be able to do this? tell you what I'd love I'd love in 20 years time or in 50 years time for some church somewhere where someone gets up to preach and they preach on something they might not call it gospel multiplication they might come up with a better title than that (laughs) but I would really love it if they were preaching in 50 years time in their little church somewhere and they said hey let me tell you about the story of how this church came into being There was a gospel overflow just down the road at Raymond Terrace. And people came here with the good news of Jesus. 
And I wonder if in 50 years' time, someone might get up and preach and say, I really wish that I could have sat with them 50 years ago with all the questions they have and all the uncertainties that exist and just say to them, hey, it worked. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be good if the gospel overflowed out of this place? Maybe church planting. Maybe something different, I don't know. But the end of the story is fixed. And we can be sure. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's keep the, the Word central. Let's not worry when opposition comes. That's when God often does His best work. The end result is guaranteed. And we just have to do the simple stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You put up with us more than put up with us you love us just like we are a bit messy a bit uncertain full of questions sometimes stumbling but you've given us your spirit you've given us the word you've given us your promise Lord help us to rest in them today help us to be a church which overflows with the gospel that we would see disciples multiplying from this place and going out with the good news that this entire world needs to hear. Help us, we pray. Amen.